0: If everybody has a Bible, if you turn to Ephesians 4, we're going to pick up where we left off and finish today, at least with this study we've been doing on our new identity in Christ. Now, I want to talk about one thing before we read our text. I've heard this several times from in different places. People will say, I don't like theology. I, I don't like all that theology. It's just too complicated. It's just, you know, more than I really care about. I, I just want practical things. Tell me tell me what to do with my neighbor next door that gets up at four in the morning and runs his chainsaw right underneath my bedroom window. That's what I want to know. Can you help me with that? And let me just tell you that theology does tell you what to do with that neighbor. Tells you how to respond. And you're like, huh? (laughs) How does that work? And I'll tell you, here's why. Because first, you have to understand that as a sinner your response if you're a sinner your response would be wicked because you're dead as we've talked about here in ephesians you're dead in your trespasses and sins it says and that we walk according to the course of this world sinners do according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit it says that energizes the children of disobedience and this spirit the devil satan jesus said that that spirit was a murderer from the beginning. So if you're a sinner and you got that chainsaw next door, that's going to tell you where that desire to kill that person, your neighbor, and to destroy his chainsaw came from. And so we need to understand that. But guess what that is? That teaching is doctrine. That is doctrine. And that's things we need. So, hey, the five points of Calvinism, if I started teaching those, they would going to be like, oh. But one of them is the total depravity of man. But you have got to understand and believe that all of that affects how you live and walk and deal with sin in your own life without understanding that. So you need to understand you are a sinner, but you also would need to understand in dealing ethically with your next door neighbor with a chainsaw that you've been forgiven, cleansed, and given a new nature that doesn't desire their hurt, the desires to do what's right. You need to know that you've been adopted into God's family, that he's your father, and as your father, God loves the chainsaw sinner. And so you should too. Isn't that what we have in Matthew chapter 5? But all of that, you're hearing there, is doctrine. And doctrine tells you you need to bring him a fresh loaf of bread and not curse him or wish for his death, right? And doctrine will tell you what we've already talked about too is that the voice of the shepherd is telling you that you have to die to your old self, put off that old man, and put on the new. But that's teaching, isn't it? That's doctrine, but that's what the voice of the shepherd is going to tell you. So Paul, for three and a half chapters in his book, has been given us doctrine up to where we're at here in chapter 4. Here's the reason why you need to know that. If you tried to live ethics that we're going to look at today, the ethical teaching, the practical ethical teaching that we finally gotten to today, if you try to live that without reading, understanding, believing and experiencing the doctrine of chapters 1, 2, and 3, you will never be able to do it. It's impossible for sinners not to lie, not to steal, not to speak wickedly. It's impossible and doctrine is important to understand from their side what's going on and to understand from our side what God has given us and what that enables us to do we, we have to understand that ethical teaching apart from correct doctrine and I'm talking about the deity of Jesus Christ all the way down to the sovereignty of God the depravity of man the perseverance of the saints you name it the thing that a lot of people don't want to hear but without that correct doctrine your ethical teaching ends up being either legalism or loose living or people are confused and frustrated on how they can and should live when they hear ethical teaching and listen all the cults that are based on false doctrine every single one of them without exception have major errors in how to live a holy life they won't lead you down that path And churches that leave out the doctrine of the holy spirit guess what They're leaving you without the true power on how to live the Sermon on the Mount. And so what ends up happening, because they can't live that without the power of the Holy Spirit, and a lot of times we don't, and there's no excuse for us. But with the baptism, we can at least, we have the power and ability, potential within us to live the Sermon on the Mount. But when they deny that experience, it doesn't make us better than them. I've heard people say that to me. Well, you think that makes you better than me? I'm like, it doesn't make me better than you at all but by God's grace it does give me a power that I didn't have before And a Christian without it wouldn't have but what happens is then they have to adjust their teaching on holiness and make corrections and adjustment and so thus a lot of times they'll excuse sin in ways that's not biblical because they are having to try to somehow fit their experience and their salvation into the Bible so I'm saying it is all one unit you cannot have ethical teaching without Correct teaching from the deity of Christ right on down because when you start messing with the theology of the deity of Christ it goes into and affects the way you live in a very serious way so I'm saying it is correct doctrine I am contending and I'm not saying much about it and I'd like to say more at some time in the future but correct doctrine leads to holy living and also we can't think that we're smarter than God or the Apostle Paul Because as I pointed out, if you read in Ephesians, Romans, Colossians, he never starts off saying, this is what you should do as a Christian. He always starts off with, this is what God has done for you. Here's what the blood has done. Here's what forgiveness has been given to you. It's nothing telling you to do anything. He's saying, this is what you should have experienced. And then he gets into the ethical part of it. So we can't think we're smarter than him. In Ephesians, we didn't get into it, but he deals with election, election and who wants to hear teaching on election but it's important and I think it could be taught in a dry way that would be kind of boring but we're not talking about that but Paul has been telling us here that we should because of what he said for three-and-a-half up to four-and-a-half chapters we should walk differently we shouldn't walk as other people that we know in the world walk or even as we used to walk so let's pick up here we're gonna be concentrating on verses 25 in chapter 4 through chapter 5 verse 2 but I want to pick it up in verse 22 And Paul says that you put off concerning the former conversation, Ephesians 4.22, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, because of all that, what he said just in those few verses before, but also in the whole four and a half chapters before. out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you." be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling Savior so he's telling us here in that verses 22 to 24 that we talked about it last time it should have been a putting off of your old man you have to have a putting off of your old man by faith and a putting on of that new man that should take place at your conversion And there's a song we used to sing a little diddly back when I first got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, that there's a new man walking in my shoes, and I don't do the things that I used to do. There's been a big change in me. I've got the Holy Ghost. There's a new man walking in my shoes. And I always like that song. That's one of those ones you can whistle as you're walking down the street. Sometimes. People look at you funny. That's not a cool song, I guess, now. But he goes on to, he's telling us now, this is what that change should look like. That's what we're seeing here in verses 25, right on through chapter 5. He says, wherefore, because that change has taken place, here is what you should do. And we've been talking about this change for the last three messages we've taught on this in Ephesians 4. So here's he saying how you should apply to your life what I've just taught to you. And here's the thing, he just takes everyday things, doesn't he? This is not going to be some new, exciting Whatever, he just takes the everyday temptations and trials that we all face. Nothing exciting, no bells and whistles, but common issues like lying, anger, stealing, and our speech. Bitterness, wrath, and forgiveness. And I'd like everybody has had to deal with one of those things this week, I guarantee you. So it's just common things we deal with. And notice in all of these things, verses 25 through 5 too, He doesn't just tell you what you should stop doing, does He? He also tells you what you should do. So it's a putting off once and for all is what He's saying. This is not something you just, you know, you do it one day a week, but the other day you put on other clothes. This is not like, you know, on Sunday I've got my Sunday holiness clothes on, but then I put my workday clothes on, you know, Monday through Saturday and go back to however I want to live? That's not what he's saying here. It's a a once and for all change taking off these clothes. And the clothes he's telling us to put on, they'll stand up to all circumstances. You don't need a second set of clothes and you'll never wear them out. What he's telling us here to put on. And after he finishes each explanation, what to stop doing, what to start doing, he gives us the theological reasons for it. And most of that is based around the fact that he's talking to the church. And most of this is under the context of this is how we should be dealing with each other. We want our church to be right. So beginning in verse 25, he says this. He says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So he tells us, first of all, to put away lying. And I agree with the commentator. I think it's true. He's, he's taking things in order of their frequency. Because I'm telling you, lying is it's probably a problem. It's got to be a problem in here to some extent. But a national study in America found that 91% of Americans admit to lying on a regular basis. This isn't like just every now and then. It's like all the time, it's a way of life. 91% of Americans. Now you think 91% of Americans would say they aren't Christians? But boy, oh boy, they're going to be having trouble. You won't want to admit that on the Day of Judgment. Admit it to a reporter. But if you have to admit that on the Day of Judgment, that is going to be trouble. There's an article written. It's called Lying, America's Favorite Pastime. And it really is. So this guy, his name was Robert Friedman, did this study at this university, University of Massachusetts. He got 240 undergrad students and what he did is he put two of them in a room at the same time and they had a ten-minute conversation that was recorded so during the conversation no one admitted while they're recording these conversations between these two people and they told them various things to talk about no one admitted the lie. but what he did then was he said look we recorded this conversation you have with this other person and we'd like you to watch it with us both the people and just tell us every time you told a lie and so 60 percent of those people in a 10-minute conversation lied at least once and the average was three lies in 10 minutes you imagine what that go out I mean this is like over nothing (laughs) not like they had to they weren't in trouble they weren't getting out of trouble but it's just a way of life and this man James Stewart he won a Pulitzer Prize he's a professor of economics but he's concerned about what this way of life, this lying in America, is doing to the moral fabric and it's gonna take our country down, in essence, is what he wrote about. And he said the frequency of lying and the tolerance of deception in America is at a critical point. And he says changes have to be made or our democracy it already is. It's too late. This this country is gone, in case you haven't realized it yet. So we can pray and maybe have God's hands stay off of judgment a longer. But this country is judged already. Now that doesn't mean we as a people have to be judged. That doesn't mean there's not young people out there and other people that God won't save. I'm not saying that. But this country as a nation is gone. It's been gone. It's been on a steady decline for a very long time. And I hate to make anybody upset, but this is not a Christian nation. It never has been the founders were not Christians. Some of them were. This is not a Christian nation. But he said, it's too easy for all of us to fall into deception. And he he talked about this researcher, this man that wrote this article, this PhD Nobel Prize winner, he goes clear back to when he was two years old and stole a dollar. And he said, when I got caught and lied about that, he said, I was ashamed he said but what happens is the more you do all that in the way it is in america and because it's become a way of life now people aren't ashamed anymore about their lies, even when they're confronted about it they think it's something to applaud dishonesty and he said what's happening here is americans are reverting to the law of the jungle a powerful code he said that will reap disastrous results it's an epidemic that's going to ruin this nation because he says, and you think about it, you go into a court system, what is our courts based on? Telling the truth, right? And so when lies prevail, you can take an oath and it means nothing to you, and you'll just tell bold faced lies like we see all the time on television, on the news with government officials every single night. It just erodes what? Trust. The epidemic of lying in America. But what does God have to say about that? That's the world. That's how the world is operating and dealing with things. So I'm not going to give all the scriptures, but we're going to look at a few. And here's a basic one. He told his people on how he wanted them to live together according to the law, Leviticus 19.11. He says this, you shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. I mean, that's not the Ten Commandments. That's Leviticus 19.11. Now, that's pretty simple and straightforward, isn't it? You don't steal from one another. You don't deal falsely. You don't rip each other off. And does that ever happen in here? You don't rip each other off and you don't lie one to another. And listen to this. This is really strong. I believe Psalm 101.7. It says, He that works deceit, God says, shall not dwell within my house. He that tells lies shall not tarry in my sight. Now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you're somebody that habitually tells lies, or you have no problem lying to get out of trouble, or you'll flatter people, that's a form of lying. You don't really mean what you say, but you'll flatter people that way, or you'll say things for people to think better of you than they should, keep exaggerating. God says, you can't dwell in my presence. That's tough. So if you would, put something there in Ephesians 4. I want to look at a few places in Proverbs, if we could. Turn to Proverbs 6 first. We'll just kind of work our way through there. We'll start at Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. And he mixes lying in here twice with a few other things that it says God hates. So Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says this. These six things does the Lord hate. and Not even hate. It says seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. And what's next? A lying tongue. He hates that hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. And here he has it again. This is how serious it is. A false witness that speaks lies. And last, he says, he that sows discord among the brethren. The Lord hates lying. Do we hate it is the question. All right, turn to chapter 14 in Proverbs proverbs fourteen verse five says this a faithful witness will not lie but a false witness will utter lies and then in verse twenty five of that same chapter it says this a true witness a person that speaks the truth will deliver souls but a deceitful witness speaks lies and i guess they're not delivering any souls either and if you'll turn then to chapter nineteen I mean, really, these verses speak for themselves. So I guess we just need to be reminded of the seriousness of telling the truth. Proverbs 19, verse 5 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished. He that speaks lies shall not escape. He changes only one word in verse 5 when you go down to verse 9, the last word. A false witness shall not be unpunished. It's the same but he that speaks lies shall what shall perish and it's awful quiet in here surely surely that's not an epidemic within our church (laughs) surely not okay so then if you turn in the new testament i want to look at two places in the book of revelation if you turn to revelation twenty one revelation twenty one verse eight so we just read that a person that lies will perish and says the same thing here Revelation 21 8 but the fearful unbelieving the abominable murderers whoremongers sorcerers idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death and look down in verse 27 these are the people that won't enter in to the kingdom that won't enter into the eternal city and they're in no wise enter into it anything that defiles neither whatsoever works abominations or makes a lie but they which are written in the lambs book of life so a person that is a habitual liar now does that mean you told one lie and that's it for you we never say that about any sin you, you won't hear me say that That there's not repentance or a person couldn't slip but what are we talking about here a person that that what characterizes their life they're a habitual liar for them they may not lie every day but they know if that situation comes up they will do it to get out of trouble or do whatever and that temptation comes across everybody's path like I say it's the country we live in and so 2215 this will be the last one we'll look at it says once again for without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and makes a lie. I could speak for myself. I told lies when I was a teenager to impress people that I didn't even need to. And I'd get caught. And I got caught one time telling this lie, and the person is like, Why did you even say that? And I'm like, I don't even have a good reason. But man, was it embarrassing. But that was a way of life for me. I lied. I mean, not everything I said was a lie, but if it would get me favor with somebody, get me out of trouble, I didn't hesitate. Because I wasn't serving the Lord, I was free from righteousness as we read in Romans, right? But when you serve the Lord, lying is out the door. That's just a basic, really basic thing. It shouldn't be an issue for us, it really shouldn't. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Well, let me ask you a question here. He says, put away lying, verse 25. And speak every man truth with his neighbor. That's actually a, a direct, speak every man truth with his neighbor. That's a direct Old Testament quotation. Zechariah 8:16, I believe. It's exactly what it says word for word. He's quoting the Old Testament. So it, we're talking here about this is relating to how we relate to each other. Mainly is what he's referring to. He's talking about your everyday conversations with everybody, but especially within our church here. So let's think about something here for a moment. What about Ananias and Sapphira? You know, what was their sin? Was their sin that they were greedy? Well, Yeah, they probably were greedy. But what was the sin that really got them in trouble? They lied to Peter, didn't they? Lying one to another. But in doing that, Peter said, well, you think you lied to me, but you really lied to the Holy Ghost, to God, he said. That's one way we know that the Holy Ghost is God. But here's what we need to consider and why Paul is putting this top on the list what if Ananias and Sapphira had succeeded in their deception and in their lie what would that have done if stuff like that just kept going on and I don't know if you all remember but the first day I stood up here as pastor I said the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of what? truth I mean if we are not a people of truth then how can a person that comes in off the street Or knows about us if they can't come in and trust us and know that we are of the truth and things we share with them are the truth what good are we to them and what good are we to each other but getting back to this Ananias and Sapphira if they succeeded guess what they would have done undermined the trust because it would have been discovered that would have undermined the trust on which a community a church a body of people is built So remember what we said, that guy said about America? The the fabric of this country, it's disintegrating. This country will just fall because it's built on relationships of deception. And you can't trust one another. A community has got to be built on trust. And that's why Paul's saying here, don't deceive your neighbor. Speak the truth to your neighbor. We shouldn't deceive one another in here because we're members. Look, that's the reason. We said he gives a reason. Look at the end of verse 25. He says, We are members one of another. He uses the analogy of we're part of a body. Would you lie to yourself and hurt yourself and deceive yourself? I mean, somebody said, I might. Well, I wouldn't. Most normal people wouldn't lie to themselves. And so, what? We are a body, we're a family, and fellowship is built on what? Trust. Is it not? So what did the great lie? You think fellowship's not built on trust? What did the great lie in the garden do? When the devil told Eve, he says, you you won't die. God told you that? He's lying to you. You won't die. You'll be as God's. And he's trying to withhold a blessing from you. And what was he doing through that lie? What did he undermine? Her trust in God and in God's word. And he also undermined what else? He undermined her trust in God's love for her. And that's what happens when we lie to each other. When we're dishonest, we're dishonest not just in words, but even in our dealings with each other. When or when someone says, "Hey, I'll be at your house at ten and ten comes, eleven comes, and they haven't showed up, they haven't bothered to call. But, you know uh, that could happen to anybody. Something could happen, right? But when you know that person, they tell you that they never do what they say. That just you just have that trust is undermined there, right? And it's a form of lying, whether somebody wants to admit it or not. You tell somebody you're going to do something, and you know they're waiting. We should keep our word unless something comes up and then there's always a phone call you can make especially with all the cell phones we have now shouldn't be a problem But people at church when i've been lied to and deceived through the years i don't have anybody in particular of mine it's hard for me when it happens repeatedly like i said it can happen to anybody but or about anything lying about anything it takes a few times to get that trust built back i mean even if you've forgiven them it's just not like you're going to commit yourself to that person or in, in that sense right but then there's other people here that for me, their word is as good as gold. And I trust them. And I'll tell you another thing that happens is when a person like that that I know is honest with me and speaks the truth, I value their opinion, don't you? Because I know that person loves me enough they will tell me the truth. So you know, you ask somebody and it's like, well, how do I look? And they, oh man, you look great. And they're lying right through their teeth. <laughs> and then you ask somebody, and somebody else comes up to you, you're like, Man, how do I look? They're like, Well. I hate to tell you this, but you got a booger in your nose and chicken in your teeth. You know, well that person like that, I might have been embarrassed by what they said, but I'll tell you what, they really are showing me love, right? And they're really my friend. They really are. Kind of a gross example, I guess, but but listen, that's that's the truth. Sometimes we we're afraid of hurting somebody and we think we're doing them a favor and we're not really and we're not really showing them love all the time, are we, when we don't speak the truth. And it's biblical because listen to this. Proverbs 27 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But listen, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They're trying to deceive you, telling you everything's cool when it's not. And that's not a friend. That's not somebody that loves you. So to show love for one another, we need to be honest with each other and speak the truth with each other. Now, that doesn't mean you guys say, hey, Amen, you're ugly. That's not it, especially when it's not asked for, right? How do I look? Well, you're pretty ugly. Well, no, we're not talking about that. I think what we're talking about is pretty obvious. But we already quoted this scripture once a faithful, read it actually a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. And so, what we're trying to say is that a community, a Christian community here in our church, is built on love. And love will never deceive another member in the church. Amen. So we're back in Ephesians and we'll move on here. In verse 26, he moves on after lying. And Paul says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And he ends verse 27 by saying, Neither give place to the devil. See, most of this stuff he's getting comes from the Old Testament. And this is taken from Psalm 4. Now, if you got a King James Bible and you turn back to Psalm 4 4, it's not going to look like that. And but the Septuagint and almost every other translation will translate it, be ye angry and sin not. But here's what, the point I want to make. If you read the context of Psalm 4 where this verse is taken from, be ye angry and sin not, David was falsely and unjustly accused. Now, when that happens, I think people get angry, don't you? You get a little upset that's just your natural reaction when you know somebody's accusing you of something that was unjust and not true, right? But David says, "Hey, you need to commune with your heart if you read Psalm 4 and look at the situation, take it in stock and then just put your trust in the Lord and be still about it. Be you angry and sin not." So, I'm going to say some anger is righteous because People talk about that the Lord Jesus got angry, but you know that it only actually says in one place that he was angry? Mark 3, the man with the withered hand, and he asked them, is it all right to heal on the Sabbath? And they wouldn't answer, and it said he was angry, looked around in anger, and it said he was also grieved. And so why was he angry with these people? Because there was no love there, the hardness of their heart, it says. He was angry and seeing the hardness. They had no compassion in them. And it made him angry. Hearts that refused to be moved with pity. Before I got saved, there was a movie that was out. It was a true story based on this man. It was called The Elephant Man. And he had this disease that it just totally distorted his features. And he was a Christian man, read his Bible, would quote Bible verses anyways the only way he could survive he ends up in going around in these circuses and he's a sideshow in these circuses and people laugh at him and this guy had problems and finally a doctor befriends him and is helping him out and they're showing him love gives him a room nobody cared about this guy nobody cared about him and in this movie they show that these people come in and they're gonna bring their girlfriends in there getting drunk and they're gonna pour liquor down his throat and do all these things to him and mock him and humiliate him which they do and I'm saying, I'm watching that, I got angry. And there's nothing wrong with getting angry with seeing things like that happen. A man like that being treated like that by other people. Had no pity for him. And that's what's going on with Jesus. So there's things that should, I think, as Christians, you can be angry in, a, in that sense. Now there's other places where it's implied that Jesus was angry, like when he drove the money changers out of the temple. And I think he was angry. But it wasn't a personal vendetta. It says that the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. He was angry for the glory of God. And I got in an argument with the Catholic priest in my religion class when I was in a Catholic that when I was talking about non-resistance, hadn't even heard of this church, just hadn't even saved yet, just started reading my Bible. I'm like, wow, how do you get war out of this? Well, his answer was, Well, hey, Jesus took a whip and drove him out of the temple. I said, I've already read that, Mr. Priest. And it doesn't ever say he hit any man at all. I don't think he hit them. I think he hit those animals on out of there. But I think he was angry and I think those guys were ashamed of their greed. But I don't think it was a personal thing. And in Matthew 23 when Jesus rebukes the scribes, the Pharisees, and the hypocrites, I don't think he talked like a sissy to them. Hey guys, this isn't right what you're doing. I don't think it was like that. I think he was angry with them and rebuked them. I really do because you know, you need to talk straight sometimes to people when they're obviously sinning. Don't you? You do. To get the message home. And I got a Bible verse for that. Listen to this. Proverbs 25:23 says, "The north wind drives away rain, and so does an angry countenance a backbiting tongue." When somebody's going to start hitting your ear up with some gossip, and you tell them, Hey, that's not right what you're doing, and you get a little upset about that. There's a verse right there. So, people that are hypocrites and gossips, according to the Bible, need to be stood up to, not tolerated. It says, But stop. And so, I don't believe the Bible says that homosexuality. Abortions, injustice, oppression of the poor, hypocrites, gossip, backbiters, murderers, and child molesters should not make you angry. If you could sit there and watch, now this is to the extreme, I would say, a child being molested by an adult and it not get you upset, especially your own kid, there's something wrong with you. There really is. Paul says, be you angry, but then he goes on to put three limitations on your anger. So this is not like, hey, you just get to go off and do whatever you want to because you're angry. And so what's the first thing he says there? Be you angry and sin not. So Jesus controlled his anger, did he? He didn't just lose it on people. He didn't. Not at all. So when he rebuked the Pharisees, he did not make that rebuke of them personal he didn't say something like man I never liked you guys you guys never liked me you dished me in line at the wedding of Cana you had no respect for me he wasn't saying I'm tired of all your questions you guys are always asking me questions trying to trick me I'm just getting me upset it had nothing to do with that did it he was exposing their sin talking directly to their sin and saying hey you all need to repent of this and what you're doing is not right the same when he was angry about their hardness of heart it wasn't personal you know, one time, Greg and I actually were working for this guy building for, I'll just say, a farmer. And this guy is, this farmer is trying to talk this builder down, way down on his price. And the builder's time to say, I gave him a fair price. And he knew it was a fair price. He's just trying to nickel and dime me to see whatever he can get out of me. Squeeze me as much as he can. And he just told the guy to his face, what you're doing is not right. And I imagine he got angry. But he didn't just sit there and hold a grudge. He, he ended up doing work for him. Everything was fine. He was a Christian. The, the builder was. But I'm saying to act like, well, that's no problem what you did. Oh, hey, no big deal. I think sometimes there are things that should make us angry in that sense. But like I said, it says be angry and sin not. Because here's what the Bible talks about people that are going to react in anger. Not just that something makes them angry when they see it happen. Proverbs 14, 17, he that is soon angry deals foolishly. Proverbs 16, 32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. Proverbs nineteen eleven. the discretion of a man will defer his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a uh, transgression. So he's saying, you're done wrong. It may be like, hey, he just did me wrong. You might get upset, but then he's saying, the glory of a man is just to let that slide sometimes, isn't it? Defer your anger. Put it off. Proverbs 22 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with the furious man thou shalt not go. And Ecclesiastes 7 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. That's a whole lot there to take in. So, You see an abortion taking place and you see what they show on TV about what's going on. I mean, that should get you upset that that's happening to these little babies when they would grow up being like our little children here. That's not right. But that's different, isn't it, than to keep seething about that and then you end up being the one that takes a gun to an abortion clinic and killing the doctor because you're mad? The Bible doesn't teach that, and I'm not teaching that at all. We had some young men move in here not that long ago, a few years back, and their main motive, as far as I could see, was to hit on our young women. That made me upset, but that didn't make me upset to the point that I'm going to do something about it and hate them or seek in their hurt. But I think things like that should—you see somebody coming after one of these, you young men. You see some guy, and that's what he's doing, and taking advantage of one of these sisters in here, and that you just act like, oh, brother, you know, treat him like nothing's up. There's something wrong with you. Should get you upset. You should be be sticking up for them and confronting that person. Doesn't mean you go on hating them. We'll talk about that because Paul goes on to say here, "Be ye angry and sin not." And he says, "Let not the sun go down on your wrath." Well, what does he mean by that? He's saying, "Hey, you need to deal with whatever that problem is and move on. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath." So David, getting back to what he said, he had to deal with that injustice and move on and put his trust in the Lord. And James 1 says this, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. It is not our place to execute God's wrath or anger on people. It is never our place to do that. And his little boy, his story goes, he gets in a fight with his brother. And the way that fight went, he was really bitter about the way it went. And his brother tried to make up with him, wanted to make things right. And he's like, I'm not even listening to you. He refused to speak to that guy all day, his brother. And bedtime came, and mom comes to him and she says, Hey, don't you think you should forgive your brother before you go to bed? Don't you know it says in the Bible, the verse we just read, don't let the sun go down on your wrath? and that boy looked a little perplexed for a while and after a few minutes he says, how can I keep the sun from going down? (laughs) You wanna just hold on to that for a while, you know? I'm thinking, man, that kid needs to move to Alaska because they have days on end where the sun never goes down. He'd probably like it there. But here, seriously, how many of us want to hold on to bitter feelings and vengeful thoughts? And he's saying here, don't let the sun, he's not setting a timetable. It's just a figure of speech that you need to deal with it quickly. You're upset, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You need to deal with it. Don't be harboring resentment. Somebody does you wrong, you need to deal with it and trust the Lord. Romans 12 says this Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but give place under wrath. In other words, something's happened that's gotten you upset. It's not for us to take vengeance, it's for us to show love to those people. That's what he goes on to say, and he says, you have to give place to God's wrath. Let him deal with it, however he wants to. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink for, in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And he goes on here to say in verse 27, here's the theological reason for all this. Neither give place to the devil. It's a progression. You're angry and you haven't dealt with it and the sun has gone down on your wrath and you keep stewing in that. And then the devil is gonna move into your life and into your heart. You're gonna have problems. And so what happens then? He'll keep painting and distorting that picture, that experience you had. He'll make it way worse than it ever was or ever should have been because you haven't dealt with it. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. He'll take a little issue and explode it into where it becomes a big one, right? So, you know, your wife doesn't pay attention to you when you talk, and you notice that, and all of a sudden you don't deal with it, and the devil's in there saying, well, she never listens to you, and she doesn't care about you, and she's got her eye on that other guy. And you know, she never gives you the respect you deserve. And next thing you know, that whole thing is, and she probably listened to every word you said. That's what happens in my house. She's listened to every word I said. And on and on and on. But hey, when you don't deal with that and you get angry and you let that spirit and resentment, that's what leads to divorce. The devil finds a place. And that's what leads to people in our church not talking to each other because they haven't dealt with issues and they're holding this resentment and anger towards somebody else. And it's not right, is it? So it's with all these issues. It's with lying. You are a habitual liar. The devil is going to... That word for place means he has got a place in you. You've given him a foothold. He says, don't do that. you got to stop lying. We've got to quit being angry in the sense of holding resentment, holding, not dealing with issues, holding bitterness, or it will affect the church. Don't give place to the devil, verse 27. And then in verse 28, it says, Let him that stole steal no more, but let him rather labor working with his hands that which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. So is stealing just pinching my wallet out of my back pocket? Is that all it is? Or shoplifting from a store? Well, it is that, isn't it? It is taking things literally that don't belong to you. But what about where you work? Do they force you to work there? or did you agree to work for whatever it is they're paying you Did someone put a gun to your head in here to take the job you have then to me it's stealing they're paying you to work for eight hours when the boss isn't around is left for whatever reason and you just goof off is that not a form of stealing it really is or what about texting on the job Whoa! now you're in trouble But let me say if your job that you're doing and you're getting paid for requires your thumb and your brain don't you think you're taking away something from your boss if you're texting? Now, I understand some people have a working relationship. They don't care if you text occasionally or whatever. But I'll tell you what, if I was working for a company, I wouldn't be texting if they're paying me to work. And you're working for a brother and you guys have an agreement or maybe your boss at your company. Well, I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about though you spend all your time when you're supposed to be working and you're so busy texting and receiving texts. I think that's an issue. That's a form of theft. It really is. So they're paying you for eight hours of work, you need to give them eight hours of work. Even with witnessing. I worked for a company and I made it a point, these people were constantly wanting to talk to these girls at this place I worked. They're just surrounded by these girls. And they wanted to ask me about my religious beliefs. And I'd be like, look, I, can't, I don't want to talk to you on the job time. I'll talk to you another hour. But you know what happened? I left the room and they would talk to themselves about me. And I got in trouble about that. My boss calls me in because people aren't getting work done. They're talking about you and your beliefs. I'm like, I can't help that. I, mean, I can't know what they're talking, and I'm not around. I said, "Am I doing it on the job?" No, you're not. I said, "I don't know what I'm. What am I supposed to do?" You know, honestly. But if you're working eight hours and you getting paid, you should be working eight hours. And the other thing, another one. What about claiming bankruptcy in America? That happens all the time, and not paying your bills. So what's legal may not be biblically ethical. And I mean, down there at Thompson Nash, they had all these farmers claiming bankruptcy, sticking them with all these bills that never got paid, and these guys would go on and do other businesses and never bother paying that person back that was owed and left hanging. I don't, That's not right for a Christian. That, that shouldn't happen here. Zacchaeus didn't do that. When he extorted money from people, what did he say? When he got saved, what's the first sign of his salvation? I'll pay him back fourfold. So if you've ever been saved and you've stolen from somebody, whoever it is, and whatever you got saved, if you've never made restitution, things aren't right yet in your life. You need to restore if you've stolen. Confess that you stole and restore back to that person. Zacchaeus is our example, and you got a credit card and you don't pay it off. You leave somebody hanging with that, just because they'll forgive you the debt. I mean, somebody's left hanging. You're a thief. You got to set things right. you capable of working. You're capable to work. But you just take money continually off the government or a church. It's not right. You know, I knew a guy. I had a friend of mine that he was capable of working, and he was getting unemployment. And he'd go in there and he'd just make up three names of companies and turn it in, and he'd just keep getting his checks. And he'd sit around all day and do drugs, and he was lazy. I'm like, man, I wasn't even a Christian. I'm like, you're just lazy. That's what you're doing is not even right. You're a thief. But if you're physically unable, we're not talking about that. You're willing, but you're just physically, unable. you know, that's not what we're talking about, obviously. But that work for labor there, when he says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather, here's the positive, let him labor. Well, that work for labor is a word that means you work to the point of exhaustion. In other words, you've put in a good day's work. And it's talking about you stealing with your hands, you're working with your hands. Honest occupations. It doesn't mean you have to be a construction worker, but you're not one of these people out there always trying to f- finagle a way to make a quick buck off some scheme. You're a person that's willing to work. Good day's work, a good honest day's work. And why? Paul gives the reason at the end. It gets back to the church here. So you can get your own needs met, but also if you're a hard worker and a diligent worker and you work 40 hours a week or whatever it takes, you'll not only have your own needs met, but we've got other needs in his body. And Johnny can be happy his box is full and overrunning. But isn't that what it says here? Am I reading that wrong? labor working with his hands the thing which is good, a good job. Why? That he may have to give to him that needs And Paul was a giver. Paul's like, man, I labor in the Word. I labor in prayer. But yet, so nobody can accuse me of being a thief. What did he say? I labor night and day, making tents. Why? So he could have to give. So what's better? A person that is a sponge or someone that is a generous soul. Because Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it really is, right? moving on verse 29 he goes on to say let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers and that word for corrupt means rotten or putrid and it was used for rotted wood rancid fish withered flowers that's what that word was just stuff that's just rotten and he says don't let any of those rotten putrid words proceed out of your mouth words that leave a bad taste in your mouth or more to the point they leave a bad taste in your spirit so i guess a christian cusser is out right? and i had a guy one time that i had to contend with him where i lived and his mouth was as foul as it could be but yet he professed to be a christian and he was ready to kill me when i said look i've never known a christian with a mouth like yours and man i mean you'd have thought I'd whatever that was the end of that But are the only rotten words, is that all he's talking about here? Are they only curse words? You know, what about words that tear down? Because he talks about we shouldn't have rotten words, but instead use words that edify or build up is what he says. Because some people are excellent swordsmen with their words. They'll cut you in a thousand pieces with them. They will. And Proverbs 12 says this, There is he that speak like the piercings of a sword. But listen, but the tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs 26 says, The words of a talebearer, here's what rotten words do, are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. So, gossip and slander, it's saying it not only affects the person that's being gossiped and slandered about, but it affects the person that has to sit there and listen to it too. So, tell me if you can guess what the name of this is. This is the description. I have no respect for justice and no mercy for defenseless humanity. I ruin without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts and wreck lives. You will find me in the pews of the pious as well as in the haunts of the unholy. I am wily, cunning, malicious, and I gather strength with age. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I feed on good and bad alike. I never forgive and seldom forget my name my name is gossip so gossip slander backbiting evil speaking crude jokes they all have a shock effect don't they when you first hear them they do but they also they leave a bad spirit in the air A spirit that can be in congregations like this if it's not checked. That's why we're talking about it today. That's why Paul talked about it. Because, listen, Rush Limbaugh, he talks about a lot of true things, doesn't he? But I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh, but I used to. I'm saying, you get done listening to that so long, and you just feel nasty inside because there's a spirit behind what he's saying so it's not just that you're saying things that are false and that he might not be right about what he's saying it's the spirit he's saying it and not only that we know that when you talk evil of the government that is not a good thing in the New Testament is it it really isn't no matter who is the president but those that fear the Lord us in here we have speech patterns that should be part of our lives they that keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking guile we depart from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. That's what Peter said. That's the way the righteous are. Good to the use of edifying, it says. That's what it says in verse 29. Don't speak corrupt communication but that which is good to the use of edifying. To build people up. To the use, it says. To the need. So. People have needs in our church, don't they? And he's saying our words should be fitting for that need to build them up. So we have people in here that are confused, discouraged, depressed, afraid, struggling in a lot of ways. And here's what we do. He's saying we do good when we speak words that will build them up. And I mean, you can just see people when you get mixed with people and you have events like we have back there. You can just kind of see it on some people's faces. They're struggling in some way, they're not saying anything. And so that's the time to pray and just start talking to them and just trust God will give you words to encourage them if that's what they need or build them up or be a good listener and then have some words to say to them, right? And so, what does he say? When we do that, what are we doing? Look. At the end of verse 29, here's the theological purpose. And like I said, he's talking here about our church. We do that. We speak use for the need of edifying. Why? That it can minister grace unto the hearers. So when we do that, what are we? We are channels of God's grace. We minister His grace to each other by the words we say, as the Holy Spirit has given them to us to say, to help each other out. They minister grace unto the hearers. Through our words. Because grace has a sound to it, doesn't it? Isn't that the first line of that song? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And that can come from a voice, yours and mine. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So Proverbs 1624 says, Pleasant words are as an honeycomb. Pleasant words, words that build up, that edify, sweet to the soul, and health to their bones. Sweet as honeycomb. I was thinking, I got Tuminello honey in my house. I thought, that's what it is. It's Tuminello honey. You got some biscuits, which I just had this week, and you put that Tuminello honey, it is sweet to the soul. It is good. So what about it today? Someone's talking negative. You hear them talking negative, and you catch them, and you say, listen, is that Tuminello honey you're spreading here? Just remember that. Tuminello honey, that's what we want. But listen, God's eyes are listening. He's listening in these end times. He's listening to our conversations. He's listening to whether our words are putrid and corrupt or whether they're good, edifying words. Did you know that? And we have an end time promise that if we as a church will speak edifying words to each other, speak the truth to each other, that God will be with us and bless us. Did you know that? Turn to Malachi 3. This one's worth seeing. Malachi 3. So we're saying the righteous have speech patterns. 16 to 18, it says, And then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Oh, what word, words do you think they're speaking? And the Lord listened, he hearkened, and heard it. So it must have been good. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And look at the promise in verse 17. And they shall be mine, saying the Lord of hosts, In that day when I make up my jewels. And look what he says. I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. And then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. So do we as a church want to be spared in the end times that are before us? We do, don't we? And so let's have words that when God listens down and hearkens, he says, ah, I'm making a book of remembrance of Shelbyville Christian Assembly. There there are people that speak words that edify each other and build each other up and encourage one another, rebuke when necessary, but it's all done in love, right? That's what we need. That's what we want. So we move on back to Ephesians, and Paul, in verse 30, says he reminds us that we have a heavenly guest sitting with us, and I would say in us, as we walk through life day by day. He's there when we get up in the morning, and He's there when we go to bed at night, and it's the Holy Spirit. And so He says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So when we lie to others and hold resentment that leads to wrath, when we take what doesn't belong to us and speak unwholesome words to others, you know what He's saying there? He's saying with all of those things He's just listed, when we do those things, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Deeply hurt is what that word means. It means to cause severe emotional distress. And that tells us something, doesn't it? That the Holy Spirit is a person and not just a force. Because that word means to vex, offend, or insult. We've got him inside of us going through the day. When we say things that we know we shouldn't say and we lie and we do whatever and know it's wrong, we are insulting the Holy Spirit inside of us, vexing Him, distressing Him. That's what the Bible says. I didn't make it up. Look, verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. He can be grieved. And So let me ask you, let's just put it this way. Billy Graham comes to stay in your house. He comes to stay in a house. You don't think he comes to stay for a week? Your life in your house might be a little bit different. I don't think you're gonna, you know, you know who Billy Graham is, right? Am I dating myself again? I'm sorry. I didn't know who else to say because there I mean, are a bunch of kooks out there now. I couldn't get the word out. But you got Billy Graham or whoever, and there's gonna be no arguing, no gossiping in your house. Your conversations are gonna be godly, right? You're not gonna steal his Bible. <laughs> you're gonna be asking him about his ministry. And you got Billy Graham in your house versus me, and he spills grape juice all over your kitchen floor that you just cleaned everything's going to be fine, right? Because he's your guest, right? You'd be careful not to offend him, wouldn't you? And he's a man, a sinner, just like all of us, right? But let me ask, honestly, are we that careful about our heavenly guest that lives inside of us not to offend him and not to grieve him? Do we ever think about it like that? And that's what Paul's telling us here. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God because he has sealed us. But have you, because I have, have you ever... You get ready to say something, and you get that check inside. You all know what I mean? Don't say what you're getting ready to say. It's the Holy Spirit putting the check there, and you just ignore it. Oh, I've done it. I'll admit, I've done it. And you go on, because you just think, I've got to say this. Well, no, you didn't. It had been a whole lot better if you didn't, because he doesn't leave you alone until you repent of that, Right? But that's what's happening. We're grieving him. He checks us and tries to stop us and we just step on him like we don't care. We don't give him the respect we give Billy Graham or anyone else that's a guest in our house. He's saying he's doing something for us though, that Billy Graham could never do. He sealed us for salvation, unto the day of salvation. That is a great thing. And we should have a lot more respect for the Holy Spirit than we have by far. Something to think about. So he ends this chapter, we'll just read these verses and what to take on, some more things to take on, and what to put on, and that we should walk in God's love as his children. And he says in verse 31, so let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, let it be put away from you. Take it off with all malice. Take that all off and put on kindness to one another, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And therefore, he says, be followers of God as dear children and walk now in love as Christ also has loved us. And he's given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. So, to sum everything up here, what we've said, he's made us here, the people here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, new creations in Christ. And us here that are Christians. That's the majority of us in here. We now have new identities. We're no longer to walk as the world walks, but how are we to walk? To remind us for the fourth time in newness of life, aren't we? And that's what he's telling us here through what we just read in practical ways. How we're to relate to each other, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter four how so that we can have the unity of the Spirit in peace. We put this chapter into practice, we will have true unity of the Spirit. We really will. But it's going to take work it's not going to just happen by osmosis and it's something that we should be striving for isn't it because if we do if we strive for that honestly and I've seen people I have seen people striving in a lot of ways since we've been teaching I notice things and I'm just really it's a blessing to me I see people putting into practice things we've talked about but we'll see God's presence in a way we'd never dreamed possible or haven't experienced yet. If we'll walk in lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another, kind, tender-hearted, loving one another, we can experience the book of Acts here. Because that's the way they were there. They had that kind of care for one another if you read the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. And I hope that is not just preacher talk, because I don't mean it as preacher talk. I really don't. I wanted to see it to be a reality. But let me say, is that how you view your Christianity? Do we take it that seriously? Do we take what God says? Not me, but do we take what we've read in this chapter and other teaching that we've had? Do we take his word that seriously? Do we really feel like we should obey it? And I would say, do we really want to know God's presence in our midst? I think we do. I really do. So I would just say, in in conclusion, and let's just not grieve our heavenly guest that we have inside us, the Holy Spirit, right? And let's walk in God's love. And we can start today. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for what you've shown us in the book of Ephesians, that you have given us a new identity and a new power and a new way to live and to walk with you. And we just thank you, Lord, for your admonishments, To put away lying, to put away anger, to not give place to the devil, to steal no more, and to let no corrupt communication come out of our mouth. Lord, I just ask that you put that in our hearts in a very real way, and for us to realize that when we do those things, that we're grieving the Holy Spirit, and instead, Lord, we want to bless Him, we want to encourage Him to be in our midst and in our lives, and blessed, and making a book of remembrance by what we're saying, that you can look down on us favorably here as a church. With your presence and I just thank you Lord I just trust that you'll do that for us here and that your word will have an effect on all of us here that can hear this voice and I thank you Lord for the work you're doing in this assembly and especially among the young people I just ask that you'll continue to draw them convict them and bring them to a saving knowledge of you and we just thank you for all that Lord in Jesus name Amen